You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Well, welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy, this month's Astronomy Roundup with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Later on, we'll be talking about backyard worlds, a new way for you sitting at home to go and look for a new planet in our solar system. But for now, let's keep it closer to home and talk about rocket launchers. There was a, a rocket launch uh, earlier this month, uh, of the SpaceX rocket, the SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, which launched uh, a a mission to the International Space Station, uh, and that launched from uh, what you might call a good old favourite launch pad, uh, pad 39A at Kennedy Space Centre. And Edward, this is somewhere you've been. Yes, I went there with my dad two years ago, actually. Uh, Kennedy Space Centre is a phenomenal place, um, and um, I can highly recommend it. So they have 39A and 39B are almost identical and sort of at the opposite ends of uh, the... They've got this giant like track where yeah. they uh, they drive the uh, the rockets vertically, and then there's a, a T junction, and they go one way or the other way. Um, and it's it is the quite astounding how big the thing is that you attach to the rockets to get the. I was going to call them pedestrians, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> that the astronauts get into. Well, of course, it was originally used for the. Uh, well, Apollo 4, I think, was the first launch, so a yep. few of the Apollo missions. So that was the Saturn V rocket, which was about 100 metres tall. Yeah, that's right. And when you look at pictures of the Saturn V and uh, the pictures of, say, the space shuttle on it, you get a real sense of how big you need a rocket to be to get to the moon. I mean, it's it's like, I think it's three times longer. The, yeah, it is enormous compared, yeah. even compared to the Space Shuttle. The Space Shuttle, of course, was iconic. It launched from, from both those pads, uh, I think, down at, uh, at Cape Kennedy, or at the Kennedy Space Center uh, in, in Florida, of course. That Since the end of the Space Shuttle program, they've been revamping this Pad 39A for uh, the Falcon 9, SpaceX's uh, large rocket. I mean, SpaceX got quite a lot of support from NASA in this uh, in this venture. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, this is really, NASA wants to encourage commercial ventures to, to launch things up to the space station because that's their business model now. So they, they have a lot of, uh, of support. Um, interesting uh, that, that so a lot of people listening maybe uh, are familiar with Cape Kennedy being called Cape Canaveral. Mm. But actually, Cape Canaveral is still there in, in just a little bit down the road. Cape Canaveral is the military launch site. Oh, and NASA oh. is, is not technically a military uh, organization so the cape kennedy is the, the non-military the nasa installation and cape canaveral is the military side the u.s air force side so if you're launching things to be part of you know a uh something that is u.s air force it goes to cape canaveral not kennedy it's not just the the u.s the united states that has uh, these distinctions a latest uh, locket launch from india from the india indian space research organization uh was uh Launched the most satellites in one go. It was 104 satellites all together. Yeah. They, well, not quite all together. I mean, they, they were launched all together, but they're not released all together. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, yeah, they're, I mean, they're quite small, yeah. as you'd imagine. Um, and But that is quite an astounding number. And the way that they then release them is when they're up um, outside the atmosphere... Uh, that they do them in little bursts mm. so that they because if you release them all together then they'll all smash into each yeah. other and it'll be a little bit pointless now most of those are actually looking at uh, uh, from a, a US company called Planet Labs which are doing Earth observation yeah. stuff so again a commercial contract gone to the uh, the Indian Space Agency, so that's certainly uh, growing and growing they're a little bit more than just advanced CubeSats though aren't they? 
Yeah, they're, they're doing quite a lot of detailed Earth observation of, yeah. of the, uh, the atmosphere on the ground, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but but they are you know very small. They basically just have a camera and communications on board. Yeah, it's very common to do satellites like this. I mean, you think of yeah. satellites being these enormous things the size of a double decker bus, and and yes, they there was a, a period when lots of them were, but now now with miniaturization of electronics and with all sorts of other uh, cameras and so on. Uh, then satellites are sort of getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, and cheaper and cheaper. And actually, these ones uh, don't have very long lifetime. They're about 18 months, I think, is uh, a typical CubeSat lifetime. Because they're just so small and basically disposable satellites. They just burn up to nothing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of rocket fuel to have something up there for 18 months, I suppose. But, yeah, uh, but, I mean, if you think about the long-term support of bigger satellites and things, it actually becomes cost-effective. And the, the, the launch from... Uh, uh, Kennedy Space Center uh, was to the largest satellite we have up there, the International Space Station. It sent a resupply craft, uh, and on board that resupply craft uh, was uh, an experiment from the European Space Agency called SAGE, which is looking at our atmosphere. You think of things on the space station, they do a lot of medical research and a lot of sort of fundamental science research with you know, making perfect spheres and all this kind of stuff you can do in microgravity. But other than that, you expect them to look down or to look up. But when they're looking at the atmosphere, they can actually look sideways. Yeah. And this gives them a, a unique view of the atmosphere. And, and actually, some of the most beautiful pictures that you've seen, uh, or you may have seen from the International Space Station, has been of aurorae and thunderstorms and things, which you get by looking sideways on uh, most spectacularly, if you look sideways on at, uh, at the atmosphere, that sort of the crescent of the Earth. And there's a serious side to this rather than taking uh, pretty pictures. That they're, they're also looking at the composition of the upper atmosphere, so looking at ozone, at oxygen, at nitrogen and all sorts of other chemicals to look at how the atmosphere is changing, how it's perhaps depleting with, with global warming and climate change. There's the ozone hole over Antarctica, which is, uh, I believe, shrinking now, but still very still much very there. Still very much there. Uh, so a lot of research uh, on, on the atmosphere uh, there. Now, further afield, we've got spacecraft exploring the solar system, of course, and one we talk about very often because results don't seem to come out that often. They're, they're often uh, sort of held back uh, for the science teams. Is, is the Dawn probe, the Dawn spacecraft, going around uh, the dwarf planet Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt? And Ceres, it keeps getting more and more interesting. Ceres is actually quite an interesting uh, uh, object in itself. It was discovered by a priest. Um, right. It was discovered... Um, I think it was called Antonio Palazzo in 19, uh, 1801. Right. Yeah, um, 1801 was certainly <coughs> when it was discovered. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, uh, so it was uh, one of the things that was discovered by a priest. Uh, I think he was working for the Vatican Observatory. Um, and that, at the time, you'd think that that would cause some sort of like cries of heresy and stuff, I mean, changing the size of the solar system and things. But actually, the Vatican Observatory has always been quite a... Um, uh, an enlightened and very scientific organisation. We've had previous discoveries of water ice on Ceres, uh, possibilities of plumes of water vapour escaping in, escaping to space, uh, salt deposits on the, the base of craters, which show the existence of uh, interesting chemical compounds, and now uh, the discovery of what look to be uh, organic elements. Now, this is not life, right? Organic yeah. is not life. So these are... Um, uh, Amino acid type things. Yeah, and, and things that you hear of being in things like tar on Earth. So so gloopy stuff, things like hydrocarbons and methane. But uh, what's thought of to be, uh, you might call prebiotic chemistry, so precursors to life. And they're very important for what we think is the formation of life. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they could just not form life as well very easily um, because we have organic compounds all over the Earth um, 
uh, that didn't form life. And you do find or organic compounds in, in other things in the solar system. But and it is, um, when you're looking at how life started on the Earth, having organic compounds being brought to the Earth possibly by uh, impacts of things that were elsewhere in the solar system or were brought in from outside the solar system. I mean, that's that could be a possibility. It might be a slightly crazy possibility, um, uh, the, the idea that life came from comets. But um, uh, finding that there is life in other places other than on the Earth is, is still a very attractive and a very exciting possibility. And in the field of astrobiology, there are, there are two favoured theories for the formation of life. One, one is that if there's water and there's the right chemical compounds and you have uh, some form of uh, some source of energy, uh, then you will form life. And the other is that it's so unlikely that we're the only place in the, the universe, perhaps, that, is, that, that life has formed. And if the first is true, if wherever these chemicals are, then finding these kind of chemicals and water and an energy source, and if there's plumes on Ceres as an energy source, all of that is quite interesting so it's, once we get a figure on how life starts then it yes. moves forward a bit faster i suppose yeah it's a very very much like the um the star trek uh version of life humanoid life existing on m-class planets everywhere yeah. it's just, <laughs> if you've got the right conditions it will always happen <laughs> yes and we, we obviously don't know whether that's uh, whether that's true uh, one of the other places with geezers spouting from its uh from its surface is uh, the the tiny moon Enceladus. Well, I say tiny; it's a few hundred kilometers across, but that's pretty pretty small by in terms of other moons in the solar system. It's a, a moon of Saturn, and famously, uh, about a decade ago, was seen to have plumes or, or geysers spouting from its south pole. It's a really surprising discovery. I think it was actually in the eighties, wasn't it? Cassini saw them after it arrived at Saturn in about 2005, but you're right, they were actually seen, although not noticed at the time, yeah. back in the 80s with the Voyager spacecraft. Yeah, and it's because the, the, the resolution was very low and there was they were quite noisy, the Voyager pictures, so it was very hard to disentangle this type of thing. But yeah, there are, there are these plumes, um, which is, again, you tend to think of these things as being you know inert, but when you see plumes, you see that actually there is active stuff going on there. There is uh, some sort of volcanic, um, uh, whether that's from uh, purely from heating underneath a, a crust or whether it's through tidal interaction. Uh, it's a it's a f fascinating thing to study. And, and the other question about the plumes on Enceladus is whether they happen just now or whether they've been going all along. Uh, for for a long time, and having found images that show they existed back in those those old Voyager uh, photos from the 1980s, says that well they've been going at least was that three decades. Yeah. Uh, so so maybe they are long lived. It isn't just that Cassini got there just at the right time to to take the pictures uh, a decade or so ago. They have been going for a long time, which is useful information. Yeah, and again, it uh, feeds into the, the possibility of life in the universe. If you've got something that that can produce this type of hot volcanic um, uh, plume then you could have some sort of life forming around that if you've got organics as well. Going back through data and finding images from previous spacecraft of, of unusual events is one way of doing it. But the other way of, of capturing uh, information is to uh, capture these events happening as they take place. And it doesn't have to be in the solar system. It can be further afield. One such example is this supernova that was found a few years ago now, uh, but very, very soon after its discovery. Yeah, it was about four years ago um, that uh, a supernova was discovered uh, three hours after it was it actually happened, or rather, it was seen to happen because it's um, it's 160 million light years away uh, in a in a galaxy far, far away. It's a spiral galaxy called NGC 7610, 
that this supernova happened in. But um, yeah, we it it was captured uh, three hours before uh, after it went off by the IPTF survey. Uh, so the the intermediate Palomar transient factory, um, which is I think a one point eight meter telescope Palomar observatory, and um, this is uh, interesting and and significant because with supernovae you you tend to think of a supernova as just a massive star that goes bang um and and that can be true it can be uh two stars it can be a binary star system one of them's pulling gas off its neighbor and that causes it to go bang or it can be a single star uh that just reaches its li- at the end of its life and goes bang in a spectacular way and that's what this one was at what's called a type 2 supernova um but we really don't understand the physics behind this. And actually, there is very uh, little that's known about that key period um, between zero and three hours, and and actually between about zero and five hours. Um, and we think a lot of things happen very rapidly. So we want to be able to see as much of that process as possible so getting this observation three hours in uh is is incredibly useful and actually they saw something new they saw uh, a belt or a, a like a fan of material being expelled ahead of the main blast wave um so uh you tend to think of it as being something which just gets very bright very quickly but they actually saw the supernova continue getting brighter mm. and then f- fade up um uh with with time and as you see it getting brighter you see different things uh appearing there so they they could analyze the astronomers could analyze the the data not only through taking pictures but also splitting light out into a spectrum so you can analyze the chemical composition of the stuff which has been blown out so understanding the processes that take place right after the supernova as the supernova is going on you're right it's going to tell us an awful lot about the uh, the physics of how stars explode and uh, I guess that the holy grail in this this way is to, to get a supernova not three hours afterwards but as it actually as it takes happens, place yeah and with the it's called the Palomar transient factory because it's it's producing all the, these transients these things are vary with time that change with time uh, very rapidly by scanning the sky is there any hope that that and similar experiments are going to do this anytime soon well I mean it's you want there to be as much um, you want to cover as much of the sky as possible as often as possible. And things like uh, the there's a, a telescope called the LSST, which is currently being built, called the the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is it's going to survey the whole southern sky um, on a at a frequency of something like every night. Um, and then you'll be able to find things which really are you know cutting edge, as long as you can interpret that data and find the things that have changed from between that night and the previous night um, quick enough to be able to tell other telescopes to then go and look at it. Because one of the big things, of course, it's all very well seeing something so flash, but being able to point another telescope at it, that all adds delay. and, and Yeah, that's to, right. To, to Actually, that's something that the observatory I work for, Las Cumbres Observatory, does an awful lot, is this follow-up of transients. Um, I work in the solar system group, and we're always looking at... Um, the results of survey telescopes so survey telescope says there's this thing which could be an earth object go and look at it and that's what we do and we confirm or deny whether it is one and similarly the um uh, with uh, ptf uh, iptf and 
and other surveys for supernovae. And staying with the solar system, I mean, in, in tracking down interesting objects, about a year ago we had the announcement of uh, Planet Nine, except this wasn't a discovery, this wasn't a detection of a new planet, the ninth planet in the solar system. That was the prediction that there would be a ninth planet in the solar system, based on the way it moved other objects right at the edge of our solar system, out, out beyond Neptune, where, where it had put them on these odd orbits, uh, objects such as Sedna, which, which goes about 900 times further than the Sun uh, than the Earth is, on a very long, looping, elliptical, uh, oval-shaped uh, orbit. But finding Planet Nine, although it's predicted to be there, is very hard. Uh, this is not something it it's goes out to uh, a few hundred times further than the Sun than the Earth is. It's probably a, a planet. It's probably very large, uh, bigger than Mars, probably smaller than, than Jupiter or Saturn. Um, but not even Las Gumbras Observatory could find this thing. It's just too faint. Yeah, it's way too faint. You're going to, to be able to find it, you're going to have to look uh, with very very powerful telescopes but the problem with them is they've got very small field of views they can only see a very small patch of sky and we really don't know where it is we've only pieced together that something is out there from looking at these other motions i think we covered it previously in a uh, pythagorean astronomy and uh, that makes it uh, tantalizing because you know that there's something there but you just can't don't have quite enough information to be able to say definitively where it is and what it is. Now, they've narrowed down the area of the sky it might be, and, and although there's the giant ground-based telescopes do have uh, very small fields of view, they look at tiny tiny bits of the sky at one time, there are telescopes that look at larger patches. There's a, a, telescope, a space telescope called WISE, which is the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, I believe, uh, which is a NASA telescope launched a, a few years ago now and still going uh, to scan the sky at infrared wavelengths, and that means it doesn't necessarily see the... The, just the reflected light, the, the reflected sunlight, it also sees uh, some of the thermal glow from these objects. Yeah, that's I, that, that sounds like a terrific thing. Uh, but again, these things, uh, this Planet Nine is not going to, it's going to be only heated by the sun, really. Um, it's going to, if it, if it has any internal um, temperature from uh, like a liquid core or anything, it's going to be pretty far away from the surface. So it's going to be pretty cold anyway. Um, but, then, you know, there might be infrared photons out there that uh, we can use to, to find where this thing is. But it's going to, when you look at the night sky, there are a lot of infrared things. And so that's why there's uh, a new citizen science project to get an awful lot of eyes doing the, the signal processing, if you like. Um, and hopefully it'll pull out Planet Nine. And this, this new project, Backyard Worlds, is the perfect opportunity for anyone in the world to go and see if they can help find Planet Nine or maybe other objects. To find out more about Backyard Worlds, I spoke to Dr Mark Kuchner from the NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre, who leads the project. It's really hard to see a, a planet out in the really far reaches of the solar system. You could hide a, uh, a Jupiter out at uh, you know thousands of AU from the sun, and we wouldn't be able to see it just because there's not a lot of sunlight to reflect out there, and and uh, even Jupiter doesn't make very much of its own heat or light. So it was an open possibility, and people started thinking about it. The story probably goes back to the discovery of this very strange icy body called Sedna in the outer solar system that is in a highly elliptical orbit, and people thought, well, wait a minute. 
something really weird is going on. It's different from the rest of the Kuiper Belt objects. Maybe it was stirred up by a passing star. Or maybe it was, you know, maybe there's some other large body out there that perturbed it into this elliptical orbit that doesn't really uh, get in close to Neptune. It, it's People were coming, had to come up with, with kind of bizarre hypotheses to try to explain it. And the uh, notion of a, of a Planet Nine really uh, was one of those ideas. It was a year or so ago where that really got narrowed down to a very specific uh, orbit, a very specific uh, list of, of places around the sky that it could be. Right. Uh, Bad again, Brown really sort of um, popularized the idea, the idea and, and uh, performed a, a series of simulations that, um, that just made the idea seem very compelling to people. And... That's the notion that we're running with at Beyond Worlds Planet Nine. And so this uh, this idea that there's something on a very specific orbit, it's orbiting, it's orbiting the sun. It's it's uh, probably right now a long way away from the sun, very hard to see, very faint, not reflecting much light. Um, but if we stare hard enough, uh, are you confident that uh, we will be able to find this this mysterious Planet Nine? Oh goodness, there are a bunch of models for what the planet would look like. Uh, we don't really know how massive it is. We have some ideas as to what its orbit could be, but we don't know where in its orbit it is. We don't know what it's made of. Of course, we we would assume that it's made of the same sorts of stuff that the other planets in the solar system are made out of. So there's really a, a vast range of possibilities for what's going on. But people have run a suite of models uh, that are suggesting that it could appear in data from NASA's WISE mission. So we have to go looking for it because this critter is so cool that we would feel silly if we didn't go look for it. Why would Wise have seen um, have seen Planet Nine? Do you think why 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 is Wise thought to be the way to find this object rather than pointing a, a normal telescope at the or an, an optical telescope at the sky? Wise has a particular advantage over pointing a optical telescope, which is that it surveyed the whole sky. So while People are trying to find Planet Nine with, for example, the Subaru telescope, making pointed observations at a particular place in the sky, kind of near Orion, where they think it might be lurking. Um, if, if you're not super confident in the uh, dynamical simulations, which nobody really is, then you have to... Uh, I think, take a more broad view for where it could be. You know, look over a wider range of sky. And Wise looks at the whole sky. So that's one advantage, that the, the telescopes here on the ground, that are the optical telescopes, they only look at these tiny patches of sky. So when you don't know exactly where something is, finding it is, is impossible. And Wise, Wise solves that by looking looking at the whole sky. Uh, now, you said there's a lot of data in Wise. So 747 million objects uh, to, to search through. Um, and and no no one person no even small group of people can can do that if you need to look at them by eye and and that's where uh, this backyard worlds project uh, has come in. So what's backyard worlds and and how is that helping with the search for Planet Nine? Backyard worlds Planet Nine is a new citizen science project that invites members of the public to come help us look for moving objects in the Wise data. And one of those moving objects could well be 
Planet Nine. What what does one have to do to to try and help in this effort? Folks, go to backyardworlds.org and view short videos of data from Wise that show images of the sky taken at four different times. And they look for objects that move and simply click on them. And then, if you like, you can click a button and go to a little social network called Talk and chat with other users about what you've seen and also chat with members of the science team like me. And I just spent all night uh, chatting with with our delightful volunteers uh, and uh, answering their questions and learning from them what we need to do to improve the site, which is always uh, humbling. So this is looking at real data from a real spacecraft that's been searching the sky for this Planet Nine. And by, by looking at these images, by highlighting things that look like they're moving, and, and there's lots of images that look like there's nothing in them. Uh, there's some images uh, that actually then have something that you spot, and you say, oh, that, that's interesting uh, in them as well. But by doing that, it's possible that someone sitting at home, uh, at their computer at home, might find uh, or might be one of the people to help find Planet Nine. That's the idea. It's hard, you know. Uh, Percival Lowell, for whom Pluto is named, uh, he, he searched for Pluto for 10 years, and he died before it was discovered. I like to say that um, if Percival Lowell had help from the thousands of citizen scientists that are already participating in this project, uh, I think he would have had a much more fun time. He would have seen Pluto discovered, and he would have made a lot of friends. It's important to point out, though, that um, you don't have to be an expert astronomer to do this. This is not designed for people who are highly skilled in searching for planets on the edge of our solar system by any means. So anyone can do this, is that right? We've tried to design the project so that uh, if you just feel like joining for a few minutes, just looking at a couple of, of images casually, you can do that, and it'll be a great help. Or if you want to dive deep in and learn how to use some of the professional tools, we've also provided some instructions on how to get started doing that as well. So um, we're hoping that there's something for everybody there. So the idea with, with Backyard Worlds is to search, uh, for people to search the sky to see if they can find uh, Planet Nine. Do you, do you think there's going to be other stuff that will, will pop out of here as well? I mean, are there other things that might crop up in Backyard Worlds? So you've probably heard that the closest star to the sun is Proxima Centauri. Yes, that, that, the, that's what I've always been led to believe. But it's possible that there are other objects between us and Proxima Centauri that we haven't discovered yet because they're too cool and too dim, maybe too red, for telescopes to easily see. So... There's a possibility that we might be able to find an object like that uh, through Backyard Worlds Planet Nine. And then, when you find an object like that, even if it's, uh, a, say, a closest object to the sun, or, or maybe if it actually is Planet Nine, is the idea then that from from this wise data, which is which is historical data, it's a few it's a few years old, can you then predict where the object that's been found is now and go and try and find it? today with a telescope here on Earth that you can direct and point all sorts of then uh, whatever instruments, whatever cameras you like at this thing. Is that is that the goal? Well, Chris, WISE launched in 2009 and, in fact, is continuing to take data today. 
we have data that just uh, was taken last year. So it's in fact quite uh, quite timely stuff. We will not have any trouble uh, figuring out where in the sky the objects are. They're going to be pretty much right where you see them. Because they move so slowly, because they're so far away, so that they won't have moved far in the intervening time, I suppose. Right, right. You know, an object in the outer solar system or, or a, uh, a nearby star moves fast compared to other stars, you bet. But, uh, but a lot slower than, say, an asteroid. As soon as we start finding interesting candidates, we'll probably start following them up with telescopes like uh, IRTF, the Infrared Telescope Facility in Hawaii, and maybe even with JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, that is set to be launched in 2018. Just think, you know, you could be sitting at home, discover an object in, in Planet Nine, and then as a result of that, uh, some of the most powerful telescopes on and off the planet are going to look at the object that you've just found uh, on the computer. Um, uh, and if that doesn't make you want to go and visit backyard worlds, uh, I don't know what will. I'll tell you one thing that will. So part of our philosophy is that the citizen scientists who work together with us are our colleagues, and we aim to include them on the scientific publications that come out of this work. Well, it's certainly an exciting uh, exciting project. I hope people go and visit. So it's backyardworld.org, uh, and uh, go and have a look and see if you can help in the search uh, for Planet Nine. Uh, for now, Dr. Mark Kuchner from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in the U.S., thanks very much. Thanks so much, Chris. Well, Backyard Worlds is certainly uh, an exciting thing to maybe try and take part in. I'm certainly going to have a look at the website. Yes, I've, I've had a look at it already. And um, it is very much a... Um, if you like doing jigsaw puzzles that are like the um, the impossible ones with just like a bowl full of baked beans, then this is one for you because it's like um, uh, looking at a bowl of Smarties, really. Yeah. Just lots of different coloured blobs. But um, uh, if you do find the... Uh, a good signature for Planet Nine, then, you know, your name could be on that discovery. Or anything else, of course. I mean, as, as Mark explained, they're looking for lots of other things uh, as well in the sky. There's lots of other things that might pop out of the data. Uh, and who knows, maybe sometime later this year, uh, we'll be reporting that someone sitting in their armchair at home has helped discover Planet Nine. Yeah, be good. Until next month, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>